Hey guys, welcome back to the Blood and Black Rum Podcast. I'm Ryan from Coltsploitation.com. I'm joined with my co-host Martin. How's it going? We have hit a milestone. We've hit our 200th episode. Ah! This episode. <laughs> Cue the fireworks. Yeah. If we had we like an it. actual an actual soundboard, we could have you know like drops for it, like you know like the. Yeah, I actually I thought about it too. I thought about like pulling out my my iPad again to to do the soundboard and have fireworks queued up and stuff. But then I was like, you know what? We're always th- lazy. Why would 200th episode be any different? I was thinking more like the like stereotypical like New Year like kazoos and like you know, little sp- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can do it. I can do it with my mouth. No problem. <laughs> but I'm but, like, uh, what's his name from po- Police Academy? <laughs> <laughs> we should have got you know what we yeah. should have got him to do. We rented uh, him on cameo. <laughs> well, our the second name of our podcast is the Chintzy Podcast. So that's we, true. That's we true. don't we don't have the we don't have the soundboard for that. We don't show out for that stuff. We don't make any money. We're lucky to have <laughs> listeners. <laughs> we have plenty. That's why we're at two hundred episodes. I'm no, that's you. just because of our own dedication. You're like, fuck it. I don't care if anybody's listening. We're gonna do it anyway. It's the tenuous straw of this friendship that keeps it, you know, keeps it going. Yeah. Two hundred episodes. So I thought before we actually get into the episode, we could do a, a look back at some of our episodes and and think about some of our favorites that we've done over the years. Um, I will we've been at it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or you can <laughs> You can play like the graduation song. As we go, on. God, do they still play that? Is that even still a thing? Or I don't think that, so. Not too much. That, vitamins. Did that die yeah. in two thousand two? Yeah, I don't think they do that too much anymore. Had its nice like three year run, and then it was just you know, I don't know. Why don't you start? What's like looking back? What's what's something that you would tell a new listener if they're just getting on at episode two hundred? Where to? Where would you think they should start? Well, um, I th- think they should start with our three-hour-long episode on Terminator. <laughs> That'd be the greatest. No, I'm just kidding. That would not be a, a great s- spot to start. Well, which Terminator? Hold on, hold on. Don't we? We haven't done Terminator. We did. Uh, what was that? Ter- Terminator. Wow. What even was that movie? I can't Genesis. remember. Genesis, Genesis. That's right. With, with the Y. With the Y. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't even remember what the movie was called because it's been so long and I really didn't care to to remember it anymore. Now I'm I'm kind of bleeding in. Maybe I'm thinking of RoboCop the remake. Which is did they have both those films have the one where it's like an unbelievable amount of software sold? <laughs> I don't I don't remember. In like in record time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember I remember but one one of those episodes, I can't remember which one it was, but um it was definitely uh like you were bitching, we were bitching about like there's no way they sold like a billion like units of software like that's like already like that's ridiculous. I think it was Genesis. I think it was Genesis because that's where like the whole Skynet's infiltrating on your phone and bullshit. Mm. So yeah, so I would say, I would say actually for for real, um, it would be it it would be in their best interest maybe to st- even to start with like the Wicker Man, which we did pretty recently. 
But that was a really good episode from us. We did we had a lot of good conversations about the Wicker Man. And that's one where we kept it mostly serious, where we didn't really go into tangents, where we, we really just we were we became critics at that point. We were we were very <laughs> much breaking down the film itself and the genre of folk horror and things like that. So that would be a, a good place to, to start. That that's like if you really wanna uh, oh, these guys are legit. Start with <laughs> start start with um with uh the Wicker Man. But then, you know, if you want to go back a little bit, um, some some good ones that we had uh, good conversations with and really had fun with, the Anthalloween series, I think, was a really fun um, Halloween series that we did and, and really got into a lot of variety too because we did anthology uh, films and, and those tend to – you get a lot of different conversations because it's almost like, you know, like f- five different stories in one, four different stories in one. Your freaking Canadian accent just came out there. Those, <laughs> yeah. Those. So we we had a good we had a good time with that one. Um, all right, I'll let you go. What else? What do you What do you think? Um, personally, um, I would recommend any of our like deep dives, like on series. So, um, our first big series that we did was the Death Wish series. Yep, yep. I would recommend doing that. It was Jeff, a Gold. long time ago. Jeff Goldblum month is a lot of fun because we did a lot of stuff that you would not normally see us do, like cats and dogs and the life aquatic with Steve Zizou. Yeah, um, that, yeah, that was like a really, really interesting break for us in pretty early on in the uh, the series as well that we did that. We it was about our like maybe like twenty five thirty episodes in. We did have on episode twenty five where we've never revisited ever again. We did a video game. We did Fallout Four, <laughs> <laughs> which which is funny because um, glowing review. If I were to review it now, I would not give it a glowing review because um, <laughs> hmm. no pun intended on the radiation joke there. Because uh, it's uh, I still haven't beaten it to this day because I get bored by hour forty. Because I'm like, all right, I've done all the side quests, and now I gotta play Bethesda's shitty storyline. So yeah. That's a lot. It was a lot of fun though doing that because it was you know something different, a little bit different. Yeah, we did a, a West Craven episode specifically too, where um, that was just after West Craven had died, and uh, we did New Nightmare, but we also kind of turned it into a, a celebration of West Craven's um, filmography, which, it, which is something that's uh, out of the ordinary. Yep, because uh, we we really haven't done that since. Uh, I would also say. Any of the Jallos that we've actually done, you know, the thing that was originally supposed to be the basis of this uh, uh, podcast, like so, like uh, the night Evelyn came out of the grave or Suspiria phenomena, uh, Tenebrae. I really like the Tenebrae episode, Um, and I think the remake of Suspiria is also a good episode to kind of listen to, and then listen to our original Suspiria. Yeah. I think the you know the remake of Suspiria over time I probably have a different perspective on it now than I did in first watching it because I think the more I've kind of lingered on it the more I've like you know grown to have great fondness for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and also she's all that. That's a great episode. One of my, <laughs> I'm so glad that we got I snuck that one in there because you know what. Ryan didn't think it'd be fun. We had a lot of fun. We did. You know what? Uh, one is a nice episode to return to as well as the Mangler. 
when we did that with Ted Levine, making God, fun of Ted Levine's a, delivery throughout the entire thing. Such time. a fun fucking episode. Yep. That is one of our more fun episodes by yeah, like that a one, mile and a half because yeah. it's such a weird, weird film. Um, if you go back to um, episode, let's see, episode 94, and then so that's Justice League. And if you start listening from Justice League, like back to Batman v Superman, you'll probably hear all of our drops about Batman v Superman that we've we've included. <laughs> because I think, like, literally, no joke, every single episode from Batman v Superman up to Justice League, we we made a comment like, well, at least the movie's not as bad as Batman v Superman. So if you go back and listen, you'll probably note that uh, there is it's- at least one comment about Batman v Superman. It's like our second uh, longest running joke on this podcast <laughs> yeah, outside, of, outside of Costas Mandalore. Absolutely. Which also, that would bring me to the Saw retrospective that we did. Actually, I was wrong about Death Wish being the first one. We did Saw first, then Death Wish. But me being somebody who never experienced the Saw films and, you know, getting going all, what, eight, seven films? Yeah, seven mm-hmm. films at the time. That was, whew, that was, that was something. If you want to hear another weird um foray into film that we never really have done before or since go back to episode 14 we watched voice without a shadow which is an uh an asian movie that japanese noir film yeah noir film that we have like that's really outside the wheelhouse that we've done um before or since we haven't really done anything like it um so our troll two, our troll two episodes, great because you know what we got uh, retweeted by one the act one of the actresses in the film. Yep. So you know, yep, troll two, um, which was another really early one, episode eleven, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yeah, interestingly enough, one of our you may want to revisit that. Yeah, it's only forty nine episodes or minutes long. I was like, that's one of our shortest episodes that we've ever done. Look at that. Because that's, I would say, that's definitely a movie where my opinion has greatly changed over time. From probably my mild disinterest to, like, yeah. great meme status. But um, Look at that. Our our um, our uh, episode on The Mummy, the Tom Cruise Mummy, <laughs> is an hour and 43 minutes long. Where we basically that was... just wax about all the things that went wrong in that <laughs> Dark universe. universe. Hey, kid. Dark. Hey, kid. As I say, hey, kids. Do you remember the dark? Oh, well, <laughs> never came. Never came. <laughs> uh, Let's see. But y- We've done a lot of good stuff, honestly. It's no wonder don't- that sometimes when we go back to the drawing board and say, like, well, what are we going to do next? You're like, I don't know. I mean, there's obviously lots of good stuff that we can do. But sometimes you're just like, we've done a lot of the good stuff that we wanted to do. I would say RoboCop would be one to uh, listen to because that's something different that we yeah. did where we, the one time we've done a actual commentary along the way. I know. I uh, do really want to revisit doing audio commentaries again. It is hard to set up and it's hard to do, but at the same time, it was a really fun idea. That I, I would think. say also too, which is not on our website, but uh, we did for J Movie Talks podcast. Yep. We did Friday the Thirteenth parts one through three. So one of these days we're gonna have in like a like two hour long episode. So like one of these days we're gonna actually was it one through three or one through four? I can't remember. I think it was one through four actually because we finished with Jason. You know, we did one through three. We did one oh. through three. Yeah, we did one through three, and then did I think we we revisited Friday the Thirteenth for part three. four. Um, for- 
We no, we only did re, uh, we only did uh, the remake. No, remake we did part week. four. We did part four um, on September sixth. For it, it was must have been a uh, yeah. There was a Friday the thirteenth that month, and we did Friday thirteenth part four as well. So yeah, if you go to J Movie Talk podcast. You can listen to our episode where we did all three in one episode, which is not like us either. We don't normally do uh, multiple films in an episode. The uh, only one we, the only other one we've done was uh, when we crammed European Vacation and Vegas Vacation into one episode. Well, that makes sense because how much can you really say about Vegas Vacation? A lot, a lot more <laughs> than you can about European Vacation. Um, well, we also did it once more with when we picked our Halloween movies. We picked 15 different movies for Halloween, and that was way back our first Halloween episode that we ever did, episode 9. We, we picked 15 horror movies that we enjoy for Halloween. We also did episode 10. This is uh, you, can, you can clearly see where we were trying to figure out what exactly we wanted to do with the, with the podcast. Um, we did horror TV. We talked about TV stuff. We did, we we talked about <laughs> The Walking Dead and the and very specifically the first three episodes of Ash versus Evil Dead and returned to Ash versus Evil Dead. Not again. Great series, by the way. Absolutely. Lucy Lawless was great. So we have a treasure trove of stuff. So we wanted to bring attention to that. We've had a really good time since we first started all the way back in 2015. Uh, so we are, we are actually coming up on seven years now. Gonna be able to buy this thing a drink soon. That's right. Seven years of discussing movies, hanging out with as best friends. It's been a great time, and we hope to do it for however long we can hold out, continuing doing it. And thank you for listening. Absolutely, we've been through a lot too. We've been through pandemics. I had kids. It's been a it's been a fun run. I got COVID over it now. <laughs> yeah, you succumbed to COVID. All all I'm thinking in my head now is just like because Betty White died, just like thank you for being a friend. We've come or however the hell the fucking Golden Girl theme goes. I don't know. Never really watched it to be honest with you. Sorry, not sorry. You're uh, you're saying that about our listeners. Thank you for being there. Yeah, like the theme song, like you know, it goes like "Thank you for being a friend." Yeah, though absolutely. we done, and I, I don't know the rest of the words. Like I said, <laughs> I never really watched. Uh, Thank you, faceless listeners who we've never met before. Now give us beer money. Absolutely. Should I should I start the uh, advertising now or just wait till the end? <laughs> we got we got a sponsor. We don't have a sponsor today. Oh no. But you know what we do have on the show today, or at least I have on the show today? I got champagne for the celebration. <laughs> is and by it champ- champagne... Is, say, is it champagne or sparkling wine? Well, what, by champagne, I mean the champagne of beers. Because that's... Even though we're named Blood and Black Rum Podcast, we gener- generally don't tend to have hard liquor on the show. We have beer. And I have Miller High Life. <laughs> I already drank mine. <laughs> yeah, I stopped and because Martin was being a little baby, he was what do you sequestered mean, for literally like four <laughs> days. Like, wow. Uh, I went out and I got him beer because he was complaining that he didn't have beer and stuff. So I picked oh. up Miller High Life, and I'll—I didn't really explain this to you at the time, but the reason why I grabbed Miller High Life specifically, 
it, I didn't set out to grab Miller High Life. I went to Hannaford, and I had anticipated getting a Jenny from Hannaford. Guess what? They don't no stock Jenny. it anymore. I don't. You know what? They don't I, stock Jenny. I, I'm not. They usually don't even have shit for it, which is surprising. Yeah. And they, so they put they they're proud to put up all the, like the New York breweries, you know, signs up. Don't have the largest, you know, brewer in fucking New York. Yep. Ridiculous. And so I, I had to go with a second choice. And I know you talk about Miller High Life quite a bit. No, I've never I, had it. No, I, t- I talk about Miller Genuine Draft. Uh, that's true. They didn't have Miller Genuine Draft. That's different. Because yeah. the only reason I talk about it is because in college, we uh, the bar that we used to go to uh, for 50 cent re- uh, mug night, where you get like five bucks for a mug. It's like an eight ounce mug or nine ounce mug or whatever, and you get fifty cent refills all night. Uh, you got Miller Genuine Draft, so that's the only reason I bring it up because it was dirt cheap. Well, I've never had either. I've never had Miller Genuine Draft, and I never had Miller High Life. Well, you're missing out on High Life because you know what? It's a cheap but delightful beer. No, absolutely. Uh, um, High Life. When I had it, I was like, "Wow, this is actually a really good beer." Um, it is cheap, but it has a lot of flavor to it. It doesn't have the overpowering like um, watery hop texture that Coors does. It doesn't have the overall water profile of Bud Light. And you know, Miller is one of my favorite beers anyway for a um, for a uh, like domestic style beer, um, Miller Light. I mean, so Miller High Life is certainly really hitting the spot in terms of a generic beer that you can drink. That's because when I think of Miller High Life, I think of like what you see on TV when people say, I'll take a beer and they hand them just like no name beer because they didn't they didn't actually specify what they wanted. I think of something like Miller High Life, which would be quench my thirst, (laughs) hit the spot, be exactly what I was asking for. So bartenders out there, if someone asks you like me for a beer when they hit the bar. Give me Miller High Life. First, if it's not a Genesee Red Eye, then hand them a Miller High Life. And the other thing that crossed my mind to get you instead of Miller High Life was Utica Club. That, well, that's, you know, basically upstate New York High Life, but not as good as High Life. Mm -hmm. I thought about it, but then I was like, yeah, you know what? I'll go with Miller High Life. I think we've done, have we done Utica Club or have we only done the, I think we only did the house logger. Yeah, I don't think we've done actual Utica Club. First beer brewed after Prohibition. Utica Club. Yep. But no, High Life is very good. Um, I haven't. I usually don't have it that often, even though it's a pretty good cheap beer because it's actually kind of hard to find. Like you know, find like just lying around. Mm-hmm. Like you either like around here, it's either six packs of like the tall, you know, the pints or the twelve ounce bottles. So it's not like you can ever really find cans really around here. But I haven't had it in a while. But it's definitely a good beer. Um. As Ryan said too, like out of all like the like major American beer brands, even though Coors, Molson, and Miller are the same goddamn thing now, but um, out of all the major like light beers, like Miller Lights, like the best by a mile and a half. Like it's not even close when you compare like Bud Light and Coors Light. It's kind of the same thing too. If you were like to base like you know Budweiser, Miller and Coors Banquet High Life wins by like a mile and a half. It's um, crisp. It's refreshing. It's, it's they call it the champagne of beers, not just because of the bottle and how it looks, but it do, definitely has like a sparkling, you know, perkly feeling to it when you drink <laughs> it. Um, I would almost say kind of almost it has like apple juice notes to it. 
I know you didn't think so. Maybe it's just COVID delirium t- talking, but kind of has like a like sw- slight like apple sweetness to it. Um, but it's definitely very enjoyable. Definitely very good. Um, something maybe I'll you know put in the rotation every now and then because I, like I said, I, if I'm look if I'm out for something to drink and there's nothing really appealing to me, a Miller Lite's kind of like a go-to because it's just a really good standard. And they, you know, do a good job with the Millers. But then again, most of those Wisconsin brews are pretty good. Because, you know, you know what's really good? Old Milwaukee. It's brewed in Wisconsin. Schlitz, pretty good as well. From yeah. Wisconsin. You know who's drinking Miller Hi- a High Life? Ron Burgundy. Because after the scene where the news anchor battles, they're all sitting down drinking High Life. I mean, that's just like, that escalated quickly. <laughs> drinking High Life. That's a delicious beer. You're, it, when, when, it, when he's rocking a hard on and he's got a beer in his hand, it's the pleats. He's got a high life. <laughs> it does have a sweetness to it, but it's not overpowering. I like it a lot. I would definitely get it again. I know it was the beer my grandfather liked. My grandfather likes Miller High Life. He only has he has uh, defined taste then, but. It's just not, like I said, it's just not like, especially in this area, it's just not like something you think of when you're walking around, you know, picking, you know, picking something to drink. Oh, yeah. We're in, we're in Bush Bavaria country. <laughs> I will say for the podcast I'm having right now a, thematically, I'm having a New York beer, New York City beer. I'm having Brooklyn Winter IPA. Uh, it's a nice red IPA. It's malty. It's hoppy. It's delightful. Excuse me. <laughs> and it's carbonated. Um, we've done Brooklyn before on the podcast. I've had the Winter IPA before. I don't think I haven't logged into it untapped for any, some reason. But like all Brooklyn beers, very well done. Keep it up. That's all I gotta say about that. <laughs> That's it. All right. So uh, moving on, um, we have a special episode today because of our 200th episode. We did a series on Carpenter for Halloween. So we did all of his Halloween-esque horror movies. Um, But we didn't do any movies outside of the horror spectrum. And we've done other Carpenter movies before where we did, uh, you know, them outside of the spectrum. We did... um, Escape from New uh, York. What? Wait, sorry. Big um, Trouble in Little China. Little China. Yep, thank you. <laughs> we did Big Trouble in Little China. Um, and I think that's – I think that's – like we didn't do – we haven't done They Live yet. Um, nope. Which is one that we we do want to get to at some point. And we haven't done any of his, his output like um, Memoirs of an Invisible Man or Starman or anything like that. Um, but we wanted to revisit because it kind of fits in the middle of what we've been getting at for, for this uh, – uh, season and 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 uh, everything that we've done on the podcast so far, we wanted to include something for our 200th episode that kind of summed up stuff that we've done, and so we felt like doing a Carpenter movie would be um, part of that step. Um, we wanted to throw it back a little bit too to our spaghetti western roots. We wanted to get Lee Van Cleef in there. Uh, we wanted to include Kurt Russell because um, he we did the thing for our. Um, 100th episode, 100th episode, which you should check out, by the way, too. That's also another great episode that we did. Yep. Um, 
Tom Atkins has been a huge part of what we've done on here from Halloween and, and The Fog and some of the other films that we've covered so far. Would you say second most important actor in your life? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, we all know, tell him who's number one because we haven't done enough of the number one. Uh, number one actor in my life. Who's who's your favorite actor? Come on. Oh, oh yeah, John Saxon. We haven't <laughs> we haven't done nearly enough John Saxon. We'll have to have a Saxon month at some point here. I'm like really disappointed you had to think about that for a second. I was just trying to get at what I was trying to figure out what you were getting at, but you're that's yes. your that's your old age showing now. Like you had to think about John Saxon. Poor I think John we've Saxon. We've only done like one John Saxon movie, right? Two, Black Christmas and New Nightmare. Oh, that's right, we did. Yep, New Nightmare. Yeah, that's that's not enough. We we have we have many more to get to. Oh, I agree. We I have to do a Saxon month at some point. That'd be a good. Uh, write that down. Saxon quarter. We'll do a whole quarter. <laughs> Saxon quarter. The Saxon quarter. <laughs> what are we a business now? <laughs> well, How the yeah. Saxon quarter perform? <laughs> not well. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, keeping Carpenter, Carpenter is as we did with his when we did Carpenter. So creepy, it's Carpenter for this year's um, Halloween special. Even though he's mainly known for sci-fi and horror, he is a man of many, many different genres and many different stylings, and usually tries to constantly do something different and new because he he definitely gets bored with concepts. Because I, I mean. We know this because Escape from New York, fertile ground for more content. We've only got one other film after that. Halloween, very fertile ground, you know, for more Carpenter, you know, antics. He didn't give a shit after the first one. Couldn't be bothered to do the second one. He's like, I'll write it and I'll do the music. Fuck off. I got better things to do, you know. So mm-hmm. he's definitely uh, somebody who we obviously hold in high regard somebody who obviously is pretty big all around as a auteur essentially, you know? Yep. Yeah. Um, and I think the fact that we haven't done escape from New York yet does say a lot because it's something that we've de- has definitely been on our radar for a long time, but we kind of wanted to save it because it's definitely, a special film, kind of like the thing, which is why we saved that for our hundredth episode. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I we definitely we wanted to do something that really related to everything else, and I think Escape from New York kind of compiles everything that we've been uh, we've been doing throughout the podcast since we started. Is you know something you know Western like uh, action, Carpenter, uh, following up on some of the you know the famous names that we've done in other films. It's a great combination of all of that to come together and do that for our 200th episode. So we're not going to do a commentary on it um, like we've done for some of the other special episodes that we've done. But instead, we're going to you know, talk about Escape from New York, maybe not get super critical about it um, like we do in some episodes because there's not really a point in getting extremely critical about what we think about the film in, in terms of like, you know, kind of a review style um, that's been done to death. The film has obviously been out for, you know, what is it, like 40, 40, 40 years now. Years now. <laughs> so uh, there's not really much use in, in reviewing it. But we are going to talk about what we like about it, um, talk about some fun stuff uh, that we've assembled. And overall, just, you know, have fun and, and uh, 
put in an episode that we can all agree is is a culmination of everything we worked for for 200 episodes. So you were the one that really wanted to do Escape from New York because it's it's one one of your babies. Uh, where where do you want to start? Um, let's start with the concept. Um, I would argue that basically Escape from New York is, which we haven't done this film yet, but it's kind of like let's take Assault on Precinct Thirteen and up the up the stakes on it, basically kind of making it like a. Prisoner breakout film. Mm-hmm. And that's what Escape from New York is. Now that Carpenter's got kind of more more to work with. Because Assault on Precinct 16 is like from 75 or 76. 13. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, so, um, but yeah, and actually, and, and it's important to note, too, that Assault on Precinct 13, um, when it came out, it really didn't do very – it didn't do anything, really. It was, um, it was a movie that – Carpenter had been working on under a different title um, that the producers didn't really think worked under that different title. They turned it out. It didn't really have much effect as we can see, you know, it it wasn't really until Halloween that um, Carpenter really had much impact on film um, and that people have now turned back to was saw on precinct 13. But at the same time, that's always really been kind of, if we, MO. Yeah, exactly. If we t- if we talk about um, Carpenter as a filmmaker, he didn't always really love horror. Um, in particular, he liked sure. he liked ideas, not horror. Um, and so sometimes those ideas crossed over into horror, but not necessarily always what he intended to make. Like he never set out and was like, "I'm just gonna, I just want to make a horror movie." Um, Action and science fiction was always more of his his uh, ingrained genre, I guess you would say. Which um, I will, I will, I'm going to tell one thing. I will take umbrage with this film is uh, people call Escape from New York a cult science fiction film. There, I will argue this is not a science fiction film. There's nothing science fictiony about it at all. It's just a dystopian jailbreak film. I think they, they the, science argue fi- the science fiction part of it just because it takes place in the future. Which that doesn't make it though science fiction. So the whole like nomenclature that it's like you know that Scott from like oh it's a science fiction action film. There's no science fiction in this film. Not at all. Just because it has like the stereotypical 80s like in the year 1990. Now well, it takes place in 1997. No, I know, but it has like that stereotypical like 80s, like you know, in the year 1990, and then they usually put like an X, like you know, mm-hmm. things yeah. happen. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think it gets that science fictioniness from it just because it has the the future date and you know some of the the gadgets and gizmos of the movie are somewhat futuristic. At the time, they were obviously. We've already surpassed 1997, so um, you know clearly the things that were displayed didn't happen in the way that Carpenter envisioned. Um, we don't have uh, one of those like silent drone f- uh, flyers, the goal fire that uh, um, Kurt pilots into uh, the Manhattan. Oh, the gl- oh, the glider. Yeah, the, the goal fire glider. Which ends up looking like the thing that they used to give you at the dentist's office that you would have to put together, like the little foam 
glider that you'd throw up in the air. <laughs> Used to have one of those. I remember I got one from the dentist's office. I put it together. I ran outside. I threw it over. Oh, a uh, dozen nose dive. Oh, broken. <laughs> it's literally like one, yeah. one, one throw. Boom. One broken. One, ma- one majestic flight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't even know if it was majestic. I think it just went up and did a nose dive and then broken. But yeah, I- I'd argue this film isn't. It's not science fiction. But one of the reasons I want to cover it is because one, it's one, it's excuse me, probably tied with my. It's probably tied as my fir- like favorite Carpenter film. This is the thing. Um, and I think it has a. Excuse me again with the hiccups. Jeez. I'm feeling like you today because usually it's you doing the hiccuping. <laughs> um, I think that it's a film that has an out like like Halloween, like a lot of Carpenter's work has a huge impact on like the cultural zeitgeist. But I think the fact that like the further we kind of get away from its creation. The impact's still there, but people don't really kind of connect that. Like, oh, that came from Escape from New York. Because, again, if you think about it in, like, five, ten years. Probably, yeah, no, five years. So, like, say in five years somebody plays, like, a Batman Arkham City for the first time. That game's been out for a decade. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, there's a giant pr- – the, they cordoned off half of Arkham uh, – I mean, half of Gotham City to become a penitentiary. That's pretty cool. <laughs> but again, like, you know, like, oh, that's, you know, like, that's a, that's a cool idea. Stupid idea, but a cool idea. But now at this point, we're like now like 50 years, like, outside the cultural zeitgeist from when Escape from New York came out. No one's really going to make that connection unless you have somebody who's like fucking 40 years old. Like, no, no, this comes from this, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's a lot of like things like, again, like this film, like, is ingrained into the cultural zeitgeist but i think it's as a something that is now that we're becoming older and we're moving further away from it it's becoming kind of like forgotten kind of like kind of like in the way i would say like when we were kids like one of the things you couldn't ever fucking escape from when you were listening to like classic rock radio was like peter frampton frampton comes alive and like how revolutionary it was like having frampton's like you know talking guitar now everyone knows about it, but it's not like, you know, like how that's kind of influenced music, but not like it, now that it, it's been like 50, 60 years now, hard to pinpoint now, like, well, where the fuck did that come from? So that's why I think like, you know, it's kind of important to cover this film because I think it has almost as important of an impact on the action genre as say Halloween has had for the slasher genre, but it, it it's not as well remembered. Because it hasn't had the opportunity to kind of gr- prosper as a franchise as, like, Halloween has. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that it has had a major impact on um, on action films, especially futuristic ones. Um, you know, I do think that in some ways this film for Carpenter almost feels like a his, his own iteration of The Warriors – because it ha- it does have a lot of similar ideas, um, especially the fact that you know his his film is also looking at the ways that um, the underprivileged kind of form their own unique identities when they're in a hardship, and you know the, just like the warriors, we have different factions in Escape from New York that have formed, and I think that f- 
that factions element, which we, we can attribute to the Warriors and even um, films earlier than that. But that faction has really influenced how we see futuristic, apocalyptic movies now, uh, which pretty much all the time now has these little factions, these these uh, different unique identities within the culture. Um, you, would, you would almost say it's Mad Max at parts. But this is before the Road Warrior came out. Correct, right. And and Beyond Thunderdome. So like it's like you'd think like oh like the whole like like when we get to like the little bouts and stuff and like some of the Duke's like henchmen look like you know like mad like oh look like you know something that would be in Mad Max. Mm-hmm. But it, it's it's before Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome because if you watch the original Mad Max, which a lot of the stuff that we attribute to the Mad Max film franchise is missing until you get to the road warrior, you know? So that's, you know, also I think really like unique and cool about it. That's like kind of, you know, not really thought about. So, um, one thing that I wanted to bring up is we have like a lot of, of actors in here that have been in or were in films from Carpenter previously and subsequently uh, that we have to really focus on. So for one thing, I wanted to bring up the fact, how much alcohol do you think was consumed on set between <laughs> Lee Van Cleef, Tom Atkins, and Donald Pleasance? Why are you forgetting Ern- Ernest Borgnine? Or Ernest Borgnine, <laughs> yeah. The, the, between the four, four of them, we can imagine that it was basically a flowing open bar of J and B whiskey, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Probably, probably why in the thing that's why Kurt Russell drinks J and B because th- th- throughout the entire filming of this, they're like, "Come on, Kurt, have a round." He's like, "No, no, I'm trying to stay in character." Like, "Come on, have a drink." <laughs> it's interesting because uh, you know we have Kurt Russell somewhat at the beginning of his career. We have Lee Van Cleef towards the end of his career. Donald Pleasant's about in the middle of his career. And then you have Ernest Borgnine, Harry Dean Stanton, nearing the end of their careers as well. Tom Atkins, middle of the career. But you have all of these different um, people in various spans of their film filmographies and all making having a huge impact um, in this film and then moving forward or before this, you know, they were they were all extremely successful in one way or another, all working together on Escape from New York. It's really a sight to be seen. Excuse me. The only thing that I take issue with is Tom Atkins doesn't really get that much to do in this movie, uh, which is somewhat um, saddening because he doesn't have a strong role here. He doesn't really get to show off too much. And that's uh, – we don't get to see enough mustachioed Tom Atkins. Uh, I, I, I understand. Say, I, say, you know, I, say, I was going to say two things. One – Kurt Russell has been an actor since he was a kid, so this is well, not... Well, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. So, you know, don't short sell <laughs> the man. He played independent league baseball. Two, Tom Atkins is a glorified fucking, like, um, baton runner in this film. He is, yeah. Great. He's just Literally basically just like, Hulk, 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 just Hulk, running every time he's in the just, scene. Just running back and forth. Like, it's great. Just like, what's Tom Atkins' job? It's like, okay, Tom, what do we... What do you need me to do, John? All right, I need you to sit there, and then you hear something, and then you jog over here, and then you hear something, and then you jog over there. Yeah, but don't you want me to? No, no. Just jog. 
It's Jack. It's all I need you to do. Jack. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do. Like I said, I I do wish that he had more to do in this movie. But at the same time, just having them all there in one place, Tom Atkins working with Lee Van Cleef, it's, it's a, still a sight to behold anyway, you know? Not only that, one of the guys, I don't, I don't know who the hell the guy is because I can't remember his name because I don't think they ever even say his name. One of the guys that's in the in the the area where they are like uh, monitoring Snake's progress, uh, one of the guys that they're with looks like Tom Atkins without the mustache. Hmm. I don't know who it is because they don't really ever say his name, but he's like the one with the suspenders and shit. And he's like trying to tell like, we need to do this. And Lee Van Cleef's like, not now. My man's still in there. But he looks just like Tom Atkins, sans mustache. Hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly who, who you're referring to, but I'll take your word for it. But let, let's let's talk about. So I think, I think this is, is it's a great idea. One, I think Carpenter's kind of ahead of the curve. I mean, even though it's like a vestige of the seventies, where that's why we got so many like cop and vigilante films of like because crime is on the rise and we need somebody to fight back against you know retake the world for the common man. Even though like that's a, that was a popular idea in like the seventies, and we got to see that when we did our Death Wish series. In the 80s, we, especially by 81, like, we're only a year into Reagan. Kind of, like, still not, like, enough into, like, how Reagan's presidency went into, like, to have, like, a grasp on what the future might hold. So, because, like, we later see that with, like, They Live. So it's interesting to see, like, after, even still after, like, the end of the 70s, and we're still kind of getting, like, a new wave of, like, Reagan ran on his, it was a, his, I can't remember if it was 80 or 84, but I think it was 80. His promise was it was a, do- a new day in America that we like we were going to get back to normal. That's what like his kind of promise was. So it's kind of interesting to see like only a year into the Reag- you know Reagan administration that we have crimes up. Hasn't gotten better since the 70s, and now we're living in a hell world. And how do we solve this? Let's take one of the most populous areas in all of the not just America. With the world and turn it into a penitentiary. A fucking moronic idea because you just think about like all the economic waste. Like, okay, let's turn lock Manhattan down and turn it into a penitentiary. Good. Think about all the business you just lost there, money. And then the money you would take then run the penitentiary. But at the same time, as stupid of an idea as it is, it's such an American idea. Because if you think back to like New England and the Puritans, as they're building the uh, the church in the schoolyard, they're building the gallows, too, at the same time. So that's, like, the most American, you know, thing in the world. Like, well, how do we combat crime? Instead of, like, thinking of an actual idea, they're like, why don't we just lock them all on a fucking island together? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, so it's, like, you know, so and we we do see this in other, you know, cultural, you know, things down the line. Like I said, like Arkham City is one of the big, you know, big things. But it's like a neat little idea where, you know, like, okay, we're going to cordon off Manhattan Island. The river's mined. The bridges are mined. There's 50-foot walls. We left, we put prisoners in there and they're left to their own devices. We don't know what goes on in there, but once they're in there, they're in there and they're not getting out. 
Right, and they're and and the idea is we're we're actively stopping them from getting out. Like the first scene that we see is a couple of people that are on a little pontoon boat thing that they like a that they've they've rigged together. They're traveling on the water, and they a helicopter comes in and just blows them out of the water. Like, no, that's not happening. Is so, that, is, is, as I say, is that a is that a metaphor for immigration? Yeah, it seems like it. I mean, especially considering our setting of New York on a boat, it certainly does. Well, um, I mean, it's 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 such a simple and stupid idea, but it works flawlessly throughout. Well, I think too the thing about Escape from New York is that unlike other films that have the political socio uh, commentary. Escape from New York really doesn't say a whole lot, specifically explicitly. Um, it 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 gives you an obvious um, setting, context, you know, especially taking place um, in the time frame that it did, releasing it in the year that it did in 1981. But it doesn't really tell you a whole lot, and our characters, none of our characters, are really. Um, meant to be likable for one thing. Snake obviously becomes likable because of how we follow him, but none of them are really intended to be like, oh, you know, this is our main protagonist that we really love and he's jolly and happy-go-lucky and stuff like that. No, we don't really get any of that. None of the characters are essentially people that we're supposed to look up to. Um, Donald Pleasance's character as the president is intentionally left vague. We're not really supposed to um, know him as a person. Um, and so all of that is really left open. The politics are really left open. And even at the end where we're, we know that this president is going to a peace summit, he has an important tape to play at this peace summit. Um, we don't really know the intentions of what that's for. It's important. We know that. He's got to get the tape there within the time frame. But what does it really mean in terms of world peace, in terms of the summit itself, uh, the war that's going on? We don't know. And we never get to know in Escape would, from New York. I would say uh, – I will say I, I think the poli- when you say the politics are you know, not very prominent – I. It's definitely prominent the mess the mess the political messaging I would say in this film because we well no that's I'm, that's not what I meant I don't mean that it's there's not politics that are prominent that you will you will glean from it I'm saying that it's not explicitly you're not going to go in and it doesn't just say oh yeah you know this is what we intended for you to get out of it there's no you have to put it together as a as a viewer there's no um you know easy through line where narratively someone tells you you know what what's going on or what kind of politics are at play here um it's more so understated and clearly at the end of the movie when snake gives his you know one question to um donald pleasant says the president and walks away disgusted again that is not really what i would call explicit it's more of an implied meaning of what he wanted to get out of the president than anything that like the 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 movie would narratively tell you now sometimes in apocalyptic movies that have a political goal or political leanings they would literally just say you know explicitly in dialogue what so you're that saying it's, 
it's not an Oliver Stone film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't just come right out and say anything. You know, Carpenter's not trying to specifically say what he what he wants to say here. I I think there there is specificity, but it's nuanced. That's where I I would disagree because there's definitely a political bent to it. There's definitely an underlying message, but it's because again, a lot of like the con- like sub like subtext that we get throughout the film about this war that's going on. If you read Wikipedia and shit, it says like, well, World War Three has been going on, but you, you wouldn't glean that though from the film because they never specifically say that. Maybe in the novelization, I never read it. Maybe that like kind of like subtext is there, but it's not there in the film. It's not present. It's very minor side detail that you get, but it's not not like too detailed. And so, like, that kind of stuff is subtle. But at the same time, I think, like, the bent that in the message that Carpenter's kind of getting at at the end, it's definitely there. And to kind of, like, say it's, like, I mean, it's nuanced, but at the same time, it's not, like, that deep, like, and, like, you have to really think hard about it. Because if you got to think hard about it at the end if after, you know, all the trials and tribulations that Snake went through to try to get the president back, and then you get that last scene where they're out and you get, you know, Snake talking to him. And when the president's getting shaved fucking old-fashioned style, too, <laughs> with, like, you know, you know, Sir, straight... Literally servant sh- you know, str- You know, straight razors and shit. And after the tr- trials that he went through to get him out, and Snake essentially has his freedom... Because he was granted, a, he was guaranteed a pardon if he got the president out. The fact that at the end of it, all he has to ask the president when he's he's like, "Some people died. How do you feel about that?" Like not anyone that Snake really felt that close to, because there was no one in there that, that he really knew outside of Henry Dean Stanton's brain. But like, even still, like he didn't go through like enough to like where he would. Excuse- excuse me, like, feel like a deep connection to these people, but he realizes they're people who have, you know, dreams and aspirations. And he's like, they died trying to get you out of there. How do you feel? And he's like, well, we we're on, we honor their sacrifice. Now, I gotta, I'm got i going to be on TV in a minute. And then you just see Snake's disdain and he walks away. That's very much, it's a nuanced take, but at the same time, it's a very much anti, you know, authority take that's like right there like you know on a silver platter like like i said it's it's nuanced and you have to kind of think about it but it's not like deep like you have to like oh like you know really dig for like the what carpenter was going for because it's and it's not just you know snake as a character but the people that he deals with throughout the entire everyone in this film is authoritarian like Lee Van Cleef is an authoritarian. Tom Atkins is an authoritarian. You know, the whole concept of a island prison to send people is like a, it's a fascist authoritarian thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, I mean, you do get to see that a little bit, especially at the end where um, we have, you know, Donald Pleasance, who's, who is escaping um, getting out alive, knows he's getting out alive. He's already crossed the wall, and the Duke is, you know, fighting with with Snake uh, at the end. And the Duke has pretty much tortured Donald Pleasant's character previously, um, and made him, you know, basically say who's the king and things like that. Because obviously, there's a power struggle here between the president who has made these decisions that have, 
impacted the Duke and the Duke who rules over uh, Manhattan and the uh, all of the prison complex there. And so at the end, you have Donald Pleasance who lets off a uh, amazing um, cry, ululation, I would say, of, uh, you know, <laughs> him being so, um, I don't know, probably enhanced by adrenaline. And there's this, again, this power struggle of, you know, he, he lords over these people. Um, at the end of the day, he has all the power. Even though it was really Snake who did everything, got the president across the wall, um, there's still that power struggle that the president has uh, basically authoritarian control over everything. Which I well, not only th- I say not only that it's sadistic. Yeah, and the fact that like you know he's gotten away. There at that point, there's no reason for him to. I mean, there is a slight reason to protect Snake, but when he goes and he starts shooting at Isaac Hayes' Duke, he takes such sadistic joy in it. Like, you know, take that, you son of a bitch, as he sits there and, you know, mows him down. It's not like, I'm going to try to save you, Snake, and he's sitting there laughing gleefully. And we get to see throughout the film, as we run into Donald Pleasance and then them trying to break him out and, like, the things that ensue, you can see Donald Pleasance... A quarter of the way through it is like, I fucking had enough of this shit. Like, he is tired. Like, because he's, like, laughing hysterically throughout the entire, like, film at, like, you know, at the situation that he's in. Because he can't believe that he's in this situation. And he probably finds it to be not, like, death-defying, but, like, a, a total inconvenience. And that's why you, like, see him, like, as, like, snakes rescuing him. Like, hurry the fuck up. Like, I want to get out of here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I, it, I I do think Donald Pleasance does a great job at that because he just he has no fucks to be given by the time at the end. But again, like you know, it's not anything noble. It's not anything like oh he was being tortured. That's why he's like that. I think it's more just like an overall his overall personality. Yeah, uh, Donald Pleasance does a really good job. He's not in it for long periods of time, long stretches. But when he is, he does um, have great range of his acting abilities and um you know we could see him in a a wide variety of different emotions but the one that i think really um shows the most is after he's gotten over the wall after he's been cleaned up given a suit you know getting his uh his his shave in um he becomes a completely different person again it shows like a mask has come over him again that as the president he's putting on this mask of being someone else and for those who don't know what just happened, him being, you know, in enemy lines and basically close to being assassinated, um, he puts on this fake persona that shows the public nothing. They don't have any idea what just occurred, that their reality of a president, um, you know, presiding over them versus uh, one that can be murdered at any time in this place that's basically like skid row um they have no idea about it and i think that that shows again like in this futuristic um authoritarian state just how little the public really knows about what's happening um in the government that they're hiding all this stuff from them um even to the point where the president can just you know be completely weak 
and at the mercy of someone else. And then all of a sudden he's saved and then become this strong person who has to deliver an important speech to uh, a summit and, and appear as though he's in power. It's a very interesting dynamic that I think Donald Pleasance does really well because like you said, there's him in a state of madness and then there's him really composed delivering a regular, <laughs> a regular speech on live TV. Um, it's an interesting, cause I really think while escape from New York is an interesting movie throughout the course of it. And it has really interesting ideas. It has, like I said, like the, the warriors element to different factions within uh, Manhattan where I think it really all comes together is that culmination at the end, which is pretty much how Carpenter works in a lot of ways where the end really becomes like a new beginning. Well, that, that, but it also culminates in like this sometimes, um, a kind of like a, it's, it, it ends okay, but it's kind of a downer. Like, oh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I guess it's okay, but there's clearly <laughs> bigger problems here than, you know, like the, 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 the story itself ended fine. The president made it out alive, but the bigger issues remain. We didn't fix I, those. I think all this film was missing was a part where as Kurt Russell's walking through New York to him to run to the orphans and he's like, I gotta get out of here. I gotta find the president. Yo! The president can't be in New York without the orphans knowing. You know, kind of like from the Warriors. Yeah. There is a meeting. <laughs> no meeting happened without the war. The orphans knowing. How could they not invite the orphans? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just <laughs> I like that ending because it is it is bleak and it is sort of anarchist in in the way that you know Snake really doesn't have a he doesn't really care what happens here in his in his switch from uh the tapes he doesn't he he's not concerned with the the consequences the outcome of it he just does which will i say what a dumb fucking thing if at first you probably think like when donald pleasant's handcuffing himself to the briefcase like oh he's probably got the nuclear codes in there that's why he's handcuffing himself mm-hmm. to it no, there's a tape on it that talks about nuclear fission, and that's going to bring peace, apparently, to China, their war with China and the USSR. How fucking dumb is that? They didn't have any other tapes made up. Right, of- exactly. They, were, they, did, they did not, you know, be prepared con- for this at all. There wasn't a contingency. And not only that, you think about it. How the fuck did the Air Force One end up flying over... This goddamn prison. They didn't. Nobody, yeah, they just didn't make a little route around it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know they were hijacked, which, you know, good good communist uh, rhetoric when th- you have the person who hijacked the uh, Air Force One um, talking about the National Liberation Front, you know, talking about workers and stuff. That's an interesting thing because that's like, you know, some nice, good, you know, com- obviously, you know, communist rhetoric. They don't dive into it enough, though. Like, okay, so, like, why is somebody who's claiming to be doing this in the, you know, for the plight of workers, well, why, like, wh- like that seems like that'd be kind of, like, an, a bigger crux to the film, like, actually having a, showing that, actually, like, maybe, like, actually showing, like, Ernest Borgnine's character, like, the cabbie, is he just in the prison because he's, 
he never left Manhattan as he sealed it up, and he's still a cabbie trapped in there? Is that supposed to be a metaphor? We don't know. <laughs> you know, that that part's not too deep, but I think that's like kind of like fertile ground for like more nuanced analysis that I don't think they kind of – he went into. I think he pulled a Romero when it comes to like, you know, when they did Dawn of the Dead, and they're like, oh, it's in a mall. And then people are like, well, this is a critique of consumerism, where Romero was probably like, yeah, I just like the mall. Probably the kind of same thing to Carpenter's probably like, yeah, National Liberation Front. That sounds super commie. <laughs> you know, have him talk about the worker. You know, and then they don't really go on more to how, you know, what that actually entails. We don't really get to see workers in this film. It's more just about the prison itself. Um, so I think in that sense, it's definitely a missed out opportunity on greater nuance. So let's talk about another thing that was um, that stuck with me. How much tape did they require to keep Adrian Barbeau's uh, breasts in her shirt? None. You think they just just gravity kept them there? Yeah, like I said, I I think as she's in this film, John's like, now listen, listen, Lee, you see those? That's why I chew on my wife every night. <laughs> No, but uh, but uh, she like her decolletage in this is just so pronounced. Why don't why don't, why, why don't you? Because uh, that's even a, a word that I don't even know. So like what like was it? It's just like your chest chest piece area. Where where, where did you learn that word? Well, was it that is French? And I did take French. But, I mean, uh, I don't know. It's just it's it's a, it's a word. <laughs> Well, I mean, like 80% of the English language is French, so I mean, yeah. I'm sure it's somewhere sprinkled in the English language, but... Décolletage. It's just... That's the word. You, you learn a new word. It's the word of the day. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm proud Adrian, to learn And word. use it in a sentence. Adrian Barbeau's décolletage is really pronounced in Escape from New York. She is probably the most useless part of this film. Yeah, she, it is true. She kind of is just a sidekick here for... She's literally just there, and I think just because John was like, "All right, I gotta have Adrian around because I'm fucking her." So, uh, Deborah, what can we have her do? Yeah, it's it's just it it definitely you know there's not uh, there's not much for her to do. She kind of just is around and in the background, and and actually half the time she's kind of like just making faces. Like, is this what I do? Is this what I do? <laughs> um, I her, like that her, time where she pulls out the gun. Uh, when the Duke is first um, capturing Kurt Russell, and uh, Brain's like, Maggie, put it away, <laughs> like almost like it wasn't supposed <laughs> to actually be in this in the scene. It's like, and then <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton had to be surprised that that actually that gun actually came out. He's like, put it away. It's not part of the script. Her perm is out of control in this film. It is very, very big in this movie. Yep. It's and how do you good. keep that managed in Manhattan when there's no hair product? I know. How do you get it? Like you're right. How do you get it like that? How do you keep it managed? That's that's a good question for for the film. Like, there, it, there's apparently no supply drops in this film. It's just you know. Well, uh, it doesn't look like it. And then not only that, but how does how does Romero the the guy who looks like he's the vampire in Fright Night, uh, how does he keep his hair like that? <laughs> that's that's pretty impressive as well. Yeah, and this film has a lot of fan service too from Carpenter. I mean, we've got Romero, Cronenberg. There's there's a lot of reference to 
other directors. I don't know. Would Cronenberg even be one at that point? Yeah. Yeah, Cronenberg had uh, done a few movies by that time, especially from the 70s. I'm kind of, you know what? Thinking about it, we haven't even done a Cronenberg film yet. We did The Fly. Damn it. Jeff right. Goldblum. <laughs> I know, but we haven't, we haven't done other Cronenberg films. Yeah, say. we haven't done – yeah, sure. We haven't done other <laughs> Cronenberg films. But yeah, yeah, this uh, is certainly a reference and, um, you know, obviously, again, Carpenter – had a lot of references here. I mean, just having Lee Van Cleef itself is a reference of showing, you know, his love of spaghetti westerns. And Escape from New York is, in some cases, a western. It is a, you know, it has that Neo, element. Neo-western. Yep, exactly. And that's part of the reason why you really enjoy the soundtrack on this movie is because of the adherence to, like, the neo-western style and – the synth work that Carpenter has done um, before and after Escape from New York, like they all kind of culminate t- together. And as you said, it is probably one of the most appropriate scores in a Carpenter movie. Um, I still think makes it's the be- most sense. I still think it's his best score too. I know you disagree with that. I, I disagree, but I think, because again, the thing doesn't count because even though it's kind of like a Toby Hooper with poltergeist type thing where you think like, you know, you know Spielberg probably did more of the actual directing than Toby Hooper. Where the thing kind of has that kind of essence too, where you feel like John Car- Carpenter actually did more than Ennio Morricone. Because it's definitely something that's totally out of like Ennio Morricone's like. Not saying he's not capable, because he's definitely one of the best, you know, film music, you know, musicians to score for films of all time. But the overall score for the thing is very more, you know, Carpenter in essence than it is Ennio Morricone. It's kind of the same thing here, where you know, I would definitely, I would definitely say Carpenter's score for this film. It's not as pronounced, but the a few of the songs definitely make it like the most. Excuse me, I think preferable in my mind. Like I think. This and Christine would be probably my. Excuse me again, Jesus. Jeez. Would de- I know, like, I can't help it. Disgusted. I know. I think that I think this film and Christine are probably my two favorite overall Carpenter scores. If we're not counting the thing, because I think the theme from this film is great, and I I think also too, you know, Duke's arrival slash barricade, you know, essentially Duke's theme is like those two tracks alone carry this film. And it's they're both so great and so kind of different from Carpenter's overall, uh, as you would say, ouvoir, ouvre. <laughs> it's uh, you know, it, they're they're just great. Not only that, I think like you know the overall theme to this film is so like very like you know I think impactful because I think a lot of people probably don't realize it, but I think. The base, like, kind of synth that goes on in this is, like, encapsulating of, like, all of, like, 8 and 16-bit generation video game music. Mm-hmm. Like, they, like, aped a little bit from this soundtrack because of the synth riffs from this film that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not dis- discounting the fact that it is a good soundtrack it's not my favorite soundtrack but I, I like the other ones for different reasons i like the other ones because they're these the ones that are darker that are you know more more uh, moody but in this case this one is not as moody as it is just suited for 
this film. It's it's it certainly has the neo western style to it, the tinge, um, and I think that that you know that works. It may, maybe not so much as like they live, which also has sort of a neo western style in times, um, but but in this case, you know, I think it does really work well for the film, um, and it's it's a good it's a good soundtrack. Uh, that that I think you know, especially because the synth the synth also works with sort of the more futuristic elements of it, and then you have like the neo western um, composition that works for the plotting of the movie. I was gonna say not only that though too, like something like something like Into the Mouth of Madness's theme. It's a great theme. I love it. Love it to death. Does it fit the film? No, it's fucking weird. Not a place. You know, the, the soundtrack to Vampires is fucking great, too. Does it really, like, fit what, like, overall what's going on? Not really. Mm-hmm. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, and as like, iconic overall as, like, the Halloween theme is, it's great. It's iconic. It fits, you know, the opening credits. And, like, this, but that film's more about musically and, and stylistically with sound. It's more about the stings. Here you get like a soundtrack and also stings too, because there's a lot of little jump scare moments in this film mm-hmm. that have appropriate stings to go with it that like are really you know well placed and fit the overall tone of the film. So I think it may be this recency bias, very well could be, but I think right now, like I said, between the the overall theme of this film, which just has you know overall great synth lines and it, just how it builds. Like, the little middle part of it's kind of like a little, yeah, it's kind of meh. But when it goes back to the the main synth line, they add, like, other synth layers to it. It's great. And then Duke's theme is just fucking great. Because it's just, like, this weird mixture, as I was telling you before we got on. Like, it's like a weird mixture of, like, Lo- Wars Lowrider and, like, Steve um, Steve Winwood and the Spencer Davis groups. Like, Give Me Some Lovin'. It's got, like, a weird mixture of that, like, Give Me Some Lovin' riff and, like, the Lowrider, like, cowbell and claps and shit. But it works so well, and it's so great. And every time you see Isaac Hayes roll up in his fucking, like, you know, Cadillac with the chandeliers on it on the front and then the disco ball, it's just fucking great. And it works incredibly well, and it's also a great riff stylistically. But I I love the soundtrack overall for this. I think it works really well. And if it's not his best, it's definitely, as I said, his most coherent overall. That fits overall the theme of the film. Mm -hmm. Yep. So what are some alternate film titles for... Escape from New York that we came up with. Um, I would say Escape from New York or how this is an implausible idea and get Snake out of there. <laughs> how how the government came up with an implausible idea to rescue the president. Not only that, like how about like, you know, I, I would also say, you know, I would I would love to see a commercial with Kurt Russell being like, "Come to Snake's Uzi Shop. Need a good SMG? Comes from the Israelis. Come to me. Get your Uzi. We can put a silencer and a scope on top of your silencer. Isn't that great? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it looks badass, but it's like again, like like the most like ridiculous fucking thing in this at the same time. 
It look like I said, it looks awesome, but at the same time, it's like it's just awful, awful, awful optic. I'm calling Lee Van Cleef versus Kurt Russell, the Kurt Van Cleef tussle. <laughs> they have they have some nice smoldering scenes as well between each other, where they are interviewed and where they're interviewing each other, and Snake is giving his whispery, uh, tough guy, um. Phrasing and Lee Van Cleef is questioning him. It, they're hey, great he's moments. Got, got no time for his bullshit. That's right. No, it, it is great. I mean, that setup. I mean, because we take about twenty minutes. <clears throat> Excuse me, Jesus. I really am you today. <laughs> I, it takes like twenty minutes to get to actually have you know Snake show up because we see him arrive on Manhattan Island. We already see, you know, Snake and Tom Atkins running about like, the president shot down! The president shot down! <laughs> you know, but um, it takes like 20 minutes for us to get to actually see Kurt Russell. And it's pretty cool, like, watching him get off, like, the bus. And it's like a prison bus, but it's only just for him. And then, like, five other guards. And then watching him kind of go through, like, the service, you know, the services. Mm-hmm. It's you know, and then the exchange between him and Lee Van Cleef is really good. I would definitely, I would definitely say, I mean, Kurt Russell's great in this. I would say at times he's definitely comes off as cliche. Maybe not by then, but today he's definitely coming off as cliche. Mm-hmm. But I think like you know the way Lee Van Cleef plays off him is great. Like you know, you know, so you're you're come here, Pliskin. My name's Snake. Oh, you were a former, you know, former Green Beret or whatever, Commando. We, I know all about that. Fuck your war. <laughs> you know, like, it's like, it's great, but at the same time, it's very, you know, it's very, especially nowadays, very kind of, you know, um, cliched. Yeah, it's like the, the I- iconic delivery of the, um, the badass, but also... <sighs> can't be bothered uh hero but i mean it it is a great exchange just because you know listening to leave and cleave kind of like run down like 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 you you don't have a choice you're either you're either going in there to get the president out or we're gonna put you in there regardless so yeah right exactly you're going in either way you're gonna you're gonna he's and then he he also agrees he's like well i guess i'm going in there you know which makes like lee which makes you know kurt russell's whole like you know bitching about it kind of like you know like come on like kirk you you don't really have a choice you know well the other thing too that the film doesn't really go too much into is they drop this whole thing about you know um snake uh robbing the federal reserve why what happened we don't get that we don't get any context it's almost like there was in the intention we want we at some point we wanted to return to this idea of him robbing the federal reserve. What happened? What was it about? Will there be a prequel? Will we see snake robbing the federal reserve? We don't get to see any of that. Your, your hopes are dashed because you will not know what happened in that. You kind of just have to go with it. And it's one of those character things where, you know, it doesn't necessarily make sense, but you just kind of are forced to accept it. Like, you know, because we don't have a reason why. 
Which I think no, is interesting. It's an interesting idea because it sets that it sets that expectation that at some point you're going to know, you know, why he did it because uh, clearly it led to him being arrested, put in put in uh, this prison complex, even though he's a pretty decorated war hero. Which is funny too, because again, apparently, which one thing that doesn't make sense is like he's a no, he's a he's like a, a commando, a you know green beret. Mm-hmm. But everyone knows who he is. Like, oh, you're Snake Plissken? I thought you were dead. <laughs> and it's like, shouldn't no one know about him? Shouldn't no one know about like his feats in Leningrad when they were talking? You know, like again, that's where I I, I think like the film has like. Enough subtext, like with like stuff like that, but maybe the novel it went into more. But there's not like enough there for you overall to like have like a deep understanding. You just know like he was former military, and obviously the places that he's been sent to, he doesn't feel like you know was worth the fucking effort mm-hmm. because you know. We hear that he was, you know, formerly a, you know, insurgent in Leningrad, and at at this, if he apparently decided, hey, I'll rub the Federal Reserve after that, you know, he's not, you know, the things he did there, he's not proud of. Mm-hmm. Yep. We don't, we don't know, but it does make an interesting element in in Snake's past. All right, so what else did we cover? Just, you gotta, you gotta have more. Yeah, how about or let's talk about Ernst Borgnine. Mm-hmm. He is just himself in this film, and it's great. Yeah, pretty much. He doesn't really <laughs> have to do too much. <laughs> he uh, can basically play himself, and and uh, his delivery itself just really seems like he showed up. They gave him the script, and they said, "Here you go." I, I, I love him in this film because it's like anytime you ever see him in a film, you're like, who's that? Well, that's certain sport night. You could tell by the acting and the eyebrows. Yeah, the eyebrows but, I mean, particularly, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, like, he, he is great. And, like, I do like the, the fact that he's, like, you know, stereotypical New York cabbie. And when Snake finally hops in, like, the cabbie with him, you know, he's like, well, I've been driving around here for over, you know, three decades. You don't want to be around here at night. Which, again, adds to, like, kind of the question, like, okay, so there's this maximum security prison. Is everyone that's in here guilty of something, or are they just here by happenstance? You know, that they just decide to cordon off the island. Ernest Borgnine in this film reminds me of a cross between Doobie and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. <laughs> and the... uh Cab driver and Scrooged. I was just, yeah, I was just yeah. Say, they're yeah. like it's like a, a mashup of them together. But this is before that. No, I know, but it's just it's just funny that it he happens to seem like a mashup of them both. Such a weird way to introduce him to like like he goes what you know Kurt Russell stumbles upon like a theater that's putting on like a Broadway show, and he's just sitting there gleefully watching like oh yeah like. Put on Brent. <laughs> I um, I tended to think like he he almost shows up like he's going to be a villain at some point, like like he's going to double cross Snake, and that doesn't happen because Ernie Spurgeon's a good guy. 
he's just overall jolly. Yep. But he is re- he's really good in this film. He's got a lot of I mean he isn't he's not overly present, but he's definitely enjoyable and somebody you can like, you know, kind of get a hold of. Like he's a he's your common man. I would definitely say too, um every time um I saw Harry Dean Stanton as brain, I don't know why, but in my mind I was thinking like, shouldn't that be like Harvey Keitel? <laughs> yeah. I don't know why, but I was like the entire time like seems like that should be Harvey Keitel in that role. But it's definitely I I would say like every everything like I said outside of like I would say I think the only person here that's kind of like out of place is Adrian Barbo because again like she doesn't really serve a purpose in this film. Mm-hmm. She's just kind of you know kind of like tacked on like you know for sex appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do I do like I really do like like the scenes where you know we finally get Snake into the city and watch him kind of creep around and like, like the run-ins that he has in like with the creeps that, you know, or like the cannibals that run around. That's a nice little tense scene uh, where we, you know, kind of get to see him, you know, wandering about and like running away. I think that's really well done. Especially because he's flirting with some chick with a mullet. And then all of a sudden they break through the fucking ground <laughs> and like like zombies. Is that what makes it a? Uh, is that what makes it a uh, science fiction film? They're supposed to be like zombies. Yeah, they're like chuds. <laughs> you know. That that whole part's pretty cool. Um, I mean, I think there's there's all kinds of different scenes that you can pinpoint that are fun experiences in um, Escape from New York. It it is overall a fun movie uh, with with various different scenes. One thing that always um, gets to me is the Duke's car uh, having to pilot between two fucking chandeliers on his front hood. Um, you you already in that Cadillac, you already have a nice big blind spot. And then you go and add two chandeliers on either side of your of your car too. You ain't gonna be seeing shit. It's fucking great though. Like I said, like add add Duke theme into like boom, boom. How do you feel about the scene where Brain is giving directions of the mines on the bridge and runs oh, that's the wrong awesome. way and blows? Oh, up? that's so awesome. That's so great, watching his fucking body fly. I mean, it's like the last like three minutes of the film, but it's so great. You get Ernest Borgnine gets blown to shit, and then you get fucking... Excuse me, you get fucking brain blown to shit and flip over a car, and then you get Adrian Barbeau sitting there with a fucking revolver, firing away at as Isaac Hayes is chasing them. And then she gets... Pinned by a car as it crashes in, and then you get to see like the bloody remains of that. That's awesome. That's really well done. You know, for a film that overall I would say is pretty tame and it's you know violence. Yep, that it's a quick little thing, but it's that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I love that. 
The only thing that's stupid is the constant adding of scopes onto everything. Is like, why, why the fuck on half these like revolvers that they're running around with, do they have these gigantic fucking scopes on them? <laughs> Again, which is, like I think I said before, too, is like, you know, Snake running around with that Uzi that's got a silencer and a giant scope on it. On the fucking silencer. That's, that wouldn't work at all. It looks fucking cool as shit. It's not practical at all. It's mm-hmm. fucking stupid. Stupid. What do you think of Snake's uh, Zubaz pants? Uh, he's, yeah, I'm surprised he's not busting out. How is he not busting out? Because he's Kurt Russell. He doesn't need to bust out. He's so I said, got- how many how many pairs of those same pants did they have on set just to make sure he didn't rip right through them? Getting out Han- a window. Goldie Hawn was there to make sure everything was intact. <laughs> I, it is funny because I, I never thought about it until now. Is like, yeah, he's wearing like these weird, like fucking urban camo Zubaz pants. Nobody was like, yeah, Kurt, that'll do. <laughs> like, you know, she put on cargo pants or something instead. Like, yeah, you know, that, that goes well with the, the shin guards that you're wearing. You know, you just come back from soccer practice. Um,. What do you what, what, did you did you like the whole after the rumble in the fucking garden at at Madison Square Garden the after the rumble where they got like an hour left until uh that the you know Kurtz wasn't gonna have any more time then it went from broad daylight to fucking di- night did you like that yeah I did yeah I did notice that yeah well, t- little timing issue there. That's a terrible continuity. <laughs> yeah. It's forgivable, but it's funny at the same time. Like, it's fucking, like, the three minutes of the film that are in broad daylight, and they're like, all of a sudden, like, oh, gotta go back to the dark. All right, so I think we pretty much covered everything that we we had talked about. But we have to give Escape from New York a rating, which is tough. It's tough to give a rating. Um, so... On a scale of, I gotta think of one because I didn't think of. I, I should have been thinking of one in Jesus. advance, but I didn't. I didn't think of one. I got one. All right. Out of one to ten, uh, Ernst Borg nine cabbie hats. I know it's great. It's great. What uh, would you give? Escape from New York. I give Escape from New York an eight out of ten. I think it's a really fun movie. Um, I think it is. A great action neo-Western film with a pretty excellent storyline um, that's not particularly unique, but at the same time brings its own character to the proceedings. And obviously Snake as a character has one that is one that has, has been part of the cult canon ever since he was in Escape from New York. Um, you know, it's it's one of those movies that I think you appreciate a lot after having seen it and especially you might like after you've seen the entirety of the film you really appreciate it more than maybe any particular part within the movie when you're watching it um so i think it's really interesting in that regard one thing i did note is that it does have a much more understated theme from carpenter like 
throughout the movie, the the soundtrack is definitely not used as much as some of his other movies to to add a mood, um, which I thought was interesting. It kind of he kind of lets it, um, kind of get its own mood from what's happening. Um, one thing I will note that I is I think that Escape from New York has that fine line between cheese and an an actual good movie, uh, and it 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 walks it well. It doesn't ever really dip too far into either territory, which is important. Escape from L.A. definitely dips way too far into the cheese territory. Escape from New York knows how to walk that line. And I think that's where we get the difference between those two movies where Escape from New York does have poor special effects in places. It does have the very pronounced punching a meat bag sound effect, but it knows how to manage and temper the, the, the cheese and nerdiness of its uh, film enough to not really fall into that trap and escape from New York has all of that, but it also has a very um, lighthearted plot. It has really bad dialogue at times. um, And it just, falls into the issue of going too far into the cheesy territory. Escape from New York does not. And that's why I give it an eight. I think it's a really fun movie that has obviously spawned a lot of films that took inspiration from it. And what would you give it? I would give Escape from New York 10 out of 10. Wow. Like I said, this is with the thing, probably my tied as my favorite Carpenter film. I think it's great. I think it's simple yet effective. I think everybody acting wise between Kurt Russell doesn't say much. Does a lot though. Lee Van Cleef does say a lot. Great. Donald Pleasance. Great. Um, Tom Atkins and his running about. Great. Um, I think it's a simple Isaac Hayes as great as the Duke. Um, I think it's a simple idea. It's an idea I think we take for granted. It borrows a lot from like 70s dystopian vigilante films, but comes up with something unique and something that's lasting, something that makes you think. But it's also simple. There's nuance. In what Carpenter's trying to say, but again, it's very simple to kind of decode. I think the soundtrack is great. I think it pairs well. It's one of, with this, the thing, and Christine, I would say it's right up there with Carpenter, some of Carpenter's best work musically. Um, Thematically, the film works. Again, I think it's definitely something that's within the cultural zeitgeist that's been there for a long time, that's kind of, it's still there, but the original principle's kind of been kind of long forgotten. You know, people might remember Snake Plissken, you know, Snake from Metal Gear forever and ever, but the idea was sown here. And I think it's one of Carpenter's most nuanced, but also one of his, his most succinct works. Everything's wrapped up in a bow. Works well. The overall, like, abandoned city look, I think they shot it in, like, East St. Louis. Looks great. 
still works today um, without like you know any special effects. The overall technology of the early '80s still works, even though it's campy. Still kind of works in today's you know with what we kind of experience the technology. I think overall it's just a very well done. Very well executed film, and I think it's got a lot to offer in how to make a very good action film. It's not that heavily action oriented, but it's so well paced, so well thought out, it works perfectly. You know, I think I think that's some nostalgia talking too. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, again, outside of this, the thing, and they live. Like, what would you, what would you say? Carpenter's done this better. I would say, uh, for me, I, I I love Halloween, Prince of Darkness. Um, I know. What is is that nostalgia talking with Prince of Darkness? No. You sure? I sure. I just Positive. yeah, and I guess we all have our preferences, and it really your preference depends on what kind of genre you really enjoyed. Um, the most and, and get the most out of. And I think that for me, it's mostly his horror stuff that I get the most out of. But for you, it's the action because you, yeah. you really enjoy Escape from New York and Big Trouble in Little China. And they live. And, and they live. And, and, you know, I guess it's just everybody has their little bit of preference of. And that's kind of how he shows that he is a great director of different genres. Um and that he can create all of these good films that kind of span genre and you have a hard time deciding which one's your favorite. And it kind of depends on what your favorite genre is. Um, one thing to note too, that we did this episode, John Carpenter is actually celebrating a birthday on the 16th. So when this releases, which will be the 14th um, in two days, he will have a birthday. So happy early birthday to John Carpenter. Don't Please. die. 74 years young. Don't die. <laughs> uh, yeah, you've got one more Halloween movie soundtrack to churn out. <laughs> Cody can't Dave, do it by himself. Uh, so you think Dave McBride's sitting there like, come on, you fucker. <laughs> Get, it do I, Get it done. Get it done. What do I need to do? How do I fix Halloween kills and like Carpenter's dying breath like you can't? Another fun fact, Gutter Garbs just released uh, their line of Escape from New York sh- t-shirts with uh, new uh, designs. So you should check that out too. Gutter Garbs uh, um, putting out, I think, four new designs, Escape from New York designs. We didn't even mention that. Jamie Lee Curtis is in this film. She's the narrator at the beginning. Yeah, that is true. It's not much of a mention, but. She's it in it. For, it is for her. Yeah, actually, uh, Gutter Garb is putting out five new Escape from New York uh, t-shirts. Um, some are the iconic Statue of Liberty poster artwork, um, which, as we it's should know, does not happen. Terrible. The <laughs> they, they literally rate uh, uh, Ape from Planet of the Apes. Like, you know, Heston, like, damn you! Damn you all to hell! And then it's like we all, all that we see of like you know Liberty Island is uh, these bunkers that they have hunkered down on there, and Tom Atkins constantly being like, "Go to the helicopters!" 
And, th- and one thing that I think is really cool about these shirts is they have two Japanese style shirts. Ooh, yeah. Like, so, pretty- so it's like, so it's like uh, kaiju. I mean, kind of. It's actually reminds me more of like Akira than than uh, anything else. But oh, that's that's a film we have to do for the podcast. Tatsuo. Yeah, yeah. Definitely check this out though. The the gutter garb shirts. They five new designs. Um, they have them a pre order up through Sunday the sixteenth. So check them out at guttergarbs.com. Really cool. Just think, without Snake Pliskin, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have Snake from Metal Gear. We wouldn't have Hoss Radborn from uh, Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy. Mm-hmm. And it's funny too because again, like I said, it's such fertile ground for something that could possibly churn out a whole bunch of different films. And we only ever got one other film. 16 years after the fact. And then not only that, it's just, you know, it hasn't really been, because again, like I said, Carpenter doesn't really do sequels, so. It's something that's got a lot of fertile ground for new stuff and kind of just got to leave it to the audience's imagination. Yeah. All right, so um, that ends our 200th episode. Thanks for sticking around with us for 200 episodes. We hope we're here for over 200 more. Um, our next episode, we were going to do scream, but I don't think we're going to be able to make it to the theater. I definitely are not going to be able to make it to the theater. Um, so we're going to pivot a little bit and we've been meaning to do this movie before. And you know, it's again, it's kind of a, different genre for us to to cover but we have done it before done wes anderson movies before we're gonna do the french dispatch which has been one that's been on our our list for a little while and i'm super excited it has pretty much literally everyone in hollywood in it at this point you you throw a dart he's probably he or she is probably in it Sorry about that. I don't even know what you said. I accidentally exited out of the clean feed. Oh, I, did, I didn't even notice. I didn't even <laughs> notice you left. No, I was saying um, we're probably not going to do Scream next week, because uh, next time, because uh, I can't get to the theater. But we are going to pivot to do The French Dispatch. Hopefully. Yeah. You just bought it, so. Well, I mean, I've wanted to see it. Mm-hmm. Because I, mm-hmm. I love me some Wes Anderson. That was something that we were not going to see in theater because they ain't coming fucking around here. Correct. Right. I can't honestly even remember the last time a Wes Anderson film was around here. Nope. It's got all your favorite uh, Wes Anderson. Uh... That's that's what I was saying. It has pretty much everybody in Hollywood at this point. So throw a dart and they were in it. Benicio Del Toro, he's there. Francis McDermott, she's there. Christoph Waltz, he's in it. Wow, wow, wow. What a kid. <laughs> I'm, so you, I'm trying to think. Wow, it's actually not that... Uh, outside of Edward Norton, Willem Dafoe, uh, Adrian Brody, I guess. Yeah, a few others. Bill Murray. Oh, Angelica Houston, she's in yep, it. She's okay. in it. Mm-hmm. They, Owen Wilson. 
That's about it. Jason Schwartzman, too. That's it. There's like 70 people in this film, but it's not, uh... Yeah, we'll have to see overall how it compares to the rest of uh, Wes Anderson's filmography. Yeah. So I think we're going to do that probably not uh, probably in two weeks. Probably if we're not going to be able to do Scream. Yeah. And then... Uh... And then we'll have to be we'll pick up from there. Maybe we'll get a Spider Man in. Maybe we'll get a Scream in. We'll see what happens. Anything's fair game. And then, uh, like we said, we got to do a Saxon month. I would say February, but we can't do February. So we got to finally uh, delve into some black exploitation. Yeah. So more to come on Blood and Black Rum podcast. We're not stopping here at 200 episodes. We're moving right on. So you'll definitely want to subscribe to us. We're on pretty much any podcasting app you can think of. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, our home base at anchor.fm. Find us on there. Subscribe. Leave us a nice review. We're on Facebook and Twitter. You can search for us there at Blood and Black Rum podcast. Uh, we have an email address at bloodandblackrumpodcast at gmail.com. You can write to us. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. What movies you want us to cover, take that into consideration. You can donate to us on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash podcast. It helps us buy beer, as we said before. Um, and you can also, I think, donate on Apple Podcasts and stuff like that. Um, whatever you donate, we totally appreciate. So thanks a lot. Uh, thank you for listening to our to 200 episodes of us. If you haven't listened to them all, go back and listen to them. We got tons of good stuff on there. Some shit, but some good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> We'll let let you decide which ones are which. (laughs) Listen to everything we have to do and find out what shite. (laughs) Yep, exactly. Um, So we thanks thanks a lot for listening to us. We truly appreciate it, and we hope you tune in for for our episodes as we go further. So um, we hope you know to see you back. Listen to our next episode on the French Dispatch, and until then. Are we going to do, um, because if we're going to talk about Bill Murray, we're going to finally do Lost in Translation so we can combine that and uh, uh, ScarJo? Oh, maybe. Yeah. I've, I actually have never seen it. So You've never seen Lost in Translation? No. Wow. Have you have you ever experienced Ghost in the Shell? <laughs> An episode, the anime, and the live action. Mm-hmm. Check out some of our shittiest episodes. All right, well, we're signing off. Thanks for listening. Till then, take care.